Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23 for our sermon text. 2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning at verse 8. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshub Bashabeth, a Tachemanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of the 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He rose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, a Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Agilom, where the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he swung his spear against three hundred and killed them. And had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the thirty, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David appointed him over his guard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, was among the thirty, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah, the Herodite, Alika the Herodite, Helaz the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh the Tekoite, Abiezer the Anathathite, Mabunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai the Natafathite, Haleb the son of Bana, 
the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai, of Gibeah, of the sons of Benjamin, Benaiah, a Pirithonite, Hadai, of the brooks of Gash, Ab-Albon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barhumite, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the son of Jashan, Jonathan, Shema, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Arharite, Eliphalet, the son of Abshai, the son of the Maakathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelik, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Berethite, armor bearers of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerab, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at your word that you would again feed us, that you would strengthen us for a battle in this world that you've put us in the midst of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So a little bit of review as we come uh, to the end of this book of 2 Samuel. We have one more sermon in this in chapter 24 and uh, 23 here. We're you remember last time we, we looked at David's, what's, re, what's it's said in the beginning of chapter 23, these are the last words of David. And so we have that, that uh, song or that psalm uh, written there, and that were the last words. And the focus of that last, those last words of the last official words of David was really uh, to focus on that everlasting covenant that God had made with David. And, of course, that everlasting covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is always seated on David's throne eternally. And so those were the official last words, not necessarily the final words spoken by David, which I think we get in the book of 1 Kings. Um, Now we get this review at the end of things of David's men. These are, this was a list, what you heard was a list of the men that served David and served the kingdom by serving David. And so um, a, few, a few things I want to pull out of this text. Some general principles that I would pull out of the text are, are these things. First, there's strength and combined effort. Strength and combined effort, right? David didn't, David had to have men around him who helped him to lead this unruly nation that uh, he was uh, put over. So there's strength and combined effort. A president is only as good as the men he chooses for his cabinet, right? Because those cabinet members are the ones leading the various branches of the government and doing the actual work while the president is making the decisions and bearing responsibility. That's sort of the work of the CEO. Don't do the work, just make sure everybody else is doing the work, right? And so it, you, you have to have good men surrounding you in order, to, um, in order to see good fruit come from that. And this is, uh, this is why Presbyterianism is, is the best way to lead churches. 
because it's all about strength in numbers. And uh, we have sessions, right? I am not the only leader of this church. We have officers beyond myself. We have um, elders, we have deacons, we have pastors, and so we have sessions, and we have a plurality of leaders. And the moderator, which is me, is only simply a leader among equals, right? The, the elders of this church are doing the shepherding work, and um, they, they have a full vote when we take votes on uh, session meetings. They don't get a half vote or three-quarters of a vote to my one vote. They get a vote, and they have authority here. They have the authority to command uh, the members of this congregation. They have command authority, Okay. Um, as much as your postmodern bones don't like that, that is true in the church and will always be true. There are also presbyteries, right? There are presbyteries beyond this. We just got back from our presbytery meeting, and that was the leaders of the church coming together to uh, lead the church. And so we had ruling elders and pastors there making decisions for the ten churches that are in Evangel Presbytery at this point. And... Um, and I moderated those, that meeting, and uh, everybody there had, had uh, the ability to speak to all the issues and abilities to, um, uh, to vote on all the issues. And so our, our Evangel Presbytery will be as strong as the combined effort of all those men. And so... Um, that was the first thing that occurred to me in reading through the, the list of these 30 men plus three uh, that surrounded David and served him. The other thing is that, that struck me about this passage is the question of is, the, is loyalty. These men were loyal to David, although, you know, we, if you go through, as we have, we're, we're coming to the end of First and Second Samuel. There's a guy named Joab who you can't ever figure out, right? You can't figure out which side he's on. You can't figure out who he's serving. At one point, he's doing the will of David. At one point, he's being wise. And at another point, he's, he's doing exactly the opposite of what David would have him do, right, with Absalom and, and others. And, uh, and so you, you can't really figure out whether Joab is... Um, well, I think you can figure out. Joab is loyal to himself. He's not loyal to the king. And he will do what... He, he is a pragmatist, right? He is, a, he is an opportunist. And pragmatists and opportunists are never loyal to the one they serve, right? Because at a certain point, they'll decide to serve themselves and not serve the one they've been... They've taken vows to serve... Um, think of a woman's loyalty to her husband, right? Is, is, that, is, it, is it very challenging for a wife to be loyal to her husband? What would you say? Depends on the husband. Well, all husbands are lunkheads, right? But here's the thing that's equally true. All wives are lunkheads too, Right? Right? So yes, it is very difficult for her to remain loyal. Every time her husband is, is uh, boneheaded 
every time, you know, she is boneheaded. And uh, think of all the times that, that women are goaded on, perhaps by other women, to speak ill of their husbands, right? That's a, that's a pastime among women. It's a pastime among men to um, speak ill of the one they have taken vows to be loyal to. Loyal through thick and thin, through uh, sickness and health, right? Through prosperity and uh, through poverty. And so loyalty is important. Loyalty to people is very important. But there's always a higher loyalty. And that is a loyalty to God himself. There's always a higher loyalty than loyalty to men. When the husband commands that which is disallowed by God, the wife should be loyal to God, right? Not loyal to her husband blindly. So loyalty to men must always be governed by loyalty to God. It's always governed that way. Think of Nathan's loyalty, Nathan, another servant of David, uh, Nathan the prophet. Think of his loyalty to David, to correct David, to come to him and say, you are the man, right? To give that parable and say, you are the man, was proof of his loyalty to David. He was committed to David's good and even to the point of rebuke. And that shows that, that Nathan the prophet was a man who was, who was both loyal to God and loyal to David. Loyal to God in that he took the chance of going into the king and saying, you have committed these sins, repent, Right? And loyal to David in the sense that he didn't just throw him to the wind or try to, try to go set up shop with Absalom, right? When Absalom was trying to take over the kingdom and leave David behind because that wicked sinner doesn't deserve to leave, lead. Nathan was loyal to David. The other thing I would say that I pull out of this passage generally is, is that men need to be courageous. Men need to be courageous. And within courage, there are several different aspects of courage. There's, I'm reading, a, I'm reading, or not reading, I'm listening to a book. I don't do that very often, but there we go. I have to correct myself. I'm listening to a book about the uh, 3rd century B.C. Uh, General Hannibal. Right, who afflicted uh, Rome, and um, what the author stops and makes a point in the middle of it about courage, and then says there's a difference between bravery and leadership. Uh, bravery is being willing to go into difficult situations, with not fearlessly, but um, with with God on your side. But leadership is the ability to make other men go with you into that danger. And that is something that men who have been given leadership need to learn. Leaders inspire men to be courage, courageous, right? And um, there's, so there's a difference between just being courageous or having bravery and being a leader in the midst of that. Now, these are the leaders of Israel. Right? These are the men who, who led uh, the forces, who led uh, the, the cabinet of David and were always around him. 
And so we begin with the three. There was this, this, uh, this were the, these were the, the most renowned or the, the closest uh, men to David, the three. Now we get to the 30 later, but the three are the top three men. Joshab Boshabeth, chief of the captains. So he was the first of the three. He was the man. We don't read about him in scripture very much, but here he is, one of the most important men to David, uh, mentioned here. He literally, his name, and he, you notice he has two names. Later it says he was Adino the Esnite. I think that was his given name, but this Joshub um, Bashabeth means sitting in the seat. Literally means in the Hebrew, sitting in the seat. And so this was, that's a way of saying that he had the position as the number one of the three, right? He's sitting in the seat. And now what did he do? What, what was his feat? He killed 800 in one battle. One single battle, he killed 800 men. I mean, you think it's a mind-boggling feat, right? He was a machine, the man must have, uh, the man had muscles that I've never had, right? To be able to carry off the strength of doing that, the strength of will alone, but the strength of body to be able to kill 800 at one time in one battle. And that's what he was renowned for, no doubt in the protection of the king and the defense of Israel. And then there's Eliezer, the son of Dodo. What he did is he defied the Philistines when, when all of Israel fled, right? Israel flees, the, 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 the armies flee, and there he is left to defend, defy the Philistines with David. And the battle was so fierce, it says, that uh, his hand stuck to his sword, uh, there are accounts uh, in many battles of this occurring, that when, when the uh, battle gets at such a pitch and the adrenaline is going and the muscles constrict and, you know, and the, the fatigue sets in, that often in battle a, a man's hand will, will seize to his sword. Uh, there's an account, a Highland sergeant at Waterloo had um, done such execution with his his um, sword, his basket-handed sword, and so much blood had coagulated around his hand that it had to be released by a blacksmith. So firmly were they glued together, the hand and the sword, right? So much blood accumulated around it that it just formed this um, seal. And so that's Eliezer. He, was, he battled and defied the Philistines with David. And then the third of the three is Shema, the son of Agi, a Hararite, which means a mountain dweller. Um, he defended a plot of ground full of lentils, right? This was, um, this was delicacy. This was good food for the troops, right? This was uh, essential to their welfare, and that's what he did. Now, these are great feats, right? But was this human courage? Alone, no. Look at verse 12. But he took his hand, he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. 
the Lord brought about a great victory. All God's servants must recognize this secret, lest we fail to see our successes as gifts from God, right? And turn and make an idol of ourselves, right? That was a gift that they killed 800 in one battle, that they defied the Philistines and that uh, Shema was able to defend that plot of lentils, right? This was from the Lord. And the scriptures make that clear that the God gave the victory. And so, um, these, we move on from there and um, we get uh, a picture of three of the 30 chief men at verse 13. Uh, these, um, this account, now we, we don't know which three of the 30 men, we don't know um, who this was, but they come to David during the harvest time. He likely, this is during the time that he's exiled from Saul, where he's running away from Saul. And um, David longs for home. And what he longs to have from home is water from his city's well. Right? That's what he wants. He wants the water of home. And these three, and, and, and what's the problem? Well, the Philistines have taken Bethlehem. They've, they're surrounding it. They're occupying it. There's not much they can do to get to the well. And um, David expresses the longing of his heart, and he had this craving, and he said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And then what do loyal men do when they hear the desires of their commander? They go and make sure that those desires are fulfilled, right? Loyal men make sure that he is taken care of. And and so they go down, right? And these three mighty men break through the camp of the Philistines. They go right in the midst of the army, just three men, break through it, they drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and they bring it back to David. And David does this. He says, nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Right, so David's response would not, we have a tendency to be like, oh, David, come on, why would you waste, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's because we're, we're, we're um, we worship the Lord superficially. That's why. Right? What David did was an act of worship. And so none of his men would have looked down on him for not drinking this water and pouring it out, it says, to the Lord, as an act of worship, right? This was an act of worship. This, this was something, and, and note also, he says that this is, this, uh, because of what these men had done, this was essentially the, their blood he had in his hands, right? Because they had risked their lives for him. And so they, they have this, he has this blood, and what he determines to do is worship the Lord with it, not waste it. By drinking it, not, not profane what these men had done by just quenching his thirst. And so these men would have admired him for doing what he did. 
He had that craving to drink it, and he, he suppressed that craving in order to pour it out to the Lord. And so this is, this is a great demonstration of the loyalty of David's men, but also the love that David had for his Lord and Savior. From there, we move on to the 30, right? So this is sort of a second tier. If the three are the top tier, we move on to the 30 here. And the chief of the 30, the head of the 30, but not one of the three. Notice how it mentions these three guys, or I think it's Benaiah and Abishai. It says that they were, they were um, what's the language that you use? He was most honored of the 30, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. Right, So it's like they, these men, Abishai and Benaiah, were like in the running to be one of the three, but they didn't attain to that level. Uh, they didn't quite make it there. And so we start with Abishai. Abishai is a man that we've, we've seen much of in the rest of the Samuels. Abishai is the brother of Joab, right, the son of Zeruiah. Now, what was Zeruiah's relationship to David? <laughs> well, Abishai would be a nephew of David, okay? Abishai is a nephew of David, and so that's something we forget, that Joab and Abishai, these men are related to David very closely. And, um, and so... Uh, that's, what, that's how closely Abishai is related to him. He's like one of the three, but he's not one of the three. It says he killed 300 men. This seems to be cumulative, not in one battle. Maybe that's what kept him out of the three. You have to do 800 in one battle rather than 300 cumulatively over your uh, military career. Uh, Abishai is also the one that went with David and took Saul's spear and water bottle. Remember when they, they went into the midst of enemy territory and took the spear? And, um, but Abishai also killed Abner and that whole um, situation there. So um, Abishai is an intriguing character. And then there's Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. He's the chief of David's bodyguard. He is the secret service for David. He's the chief of the secret service. He's like one of the three, but again, not. He killed a lot. Notice in verse 20 what it says. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of uh, Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. Now, Ariel means lion. Right? And so there seems to be some, some play here. Uh, he also went down and killed a lion in the, midst of the, in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. So he can kill men. He can kill fierce animals as well. And then he kills an impressive Egyptian man and uh, strikes him down with a club. He goes to a, a fist fight. No, he, he, right, what is the... He, he goes to a gunfight with just his fists, right? He goes with a club to um, this man who has a spear, but he takes the man's spear and kills him with it. And so we see his courage in these things. And then we get the list of the 30. We get this list of men all set out here as a reminder 
of, of those who served him. And then, as if it builds to the end, the last name is Uriah the Hittite. The very last name in the list is Uriah the Hittite. Now, who's Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba's husband, right? The man that David had killed, right? It's, this is 2 Samuel 11 and 12, that whole situation. And here at the end of the list is this Hittite, Uriah, listed as one of the 30. And it's just a reminder of the lust, the murder, the cruelty, the cover-up, all the baddest actions that David was responsible for in his uh, king, kingship, right? And you think of, I think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had a, had a, had a background, didn't he? He, uh, he said this, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by God's grace I am what I am. Right? Paul had that on his resume as a persecutor of the church. He had that on his conscience, just as David had Uriah on his conscience. And one of the commentators says this, when our most appalling memories are immersed in divine grace, there is still a holy sadness, a godly grief, a broken heart, but the memories no longer haunt us. Right? So that those painful things that we have experienced and gone through and committed, the sins we have committed that have affected other people, if, if covered in the grace of God, are still remembered and they make us remorseful, but they don't haunt us. Right? If we know the grace of God, if we know that God is a God who forgives the sins of his people, who sent his son Jesus to die for those sins. Now, that's our passage. I want to make one final application of this. And I want especially you young men to be listening to this. What passes for courage today? What passes for courage today? Um, I, I see it on my Facebook feed and on YouTube. Um, making YouTube videos of you eating extremely hot peppers passes for courage today, right? Um, or making videos of you uh, sampling dog food. Eating dog food, eating disgusting things, and not, not barfing. That passes for courage today. That's what... Um, Many young men give themselves to. Um, you know, slaying virtual uh, dragons in games is seen as um, courageous, as manly. In ages past, young men were thrust into adulthood when they were very young. Right? They were thrust into adulthood. Uh, think of agriculture. Just think of agriculture. If we lived in an agrarian society, um, our 10-year-old sons would be driving teams of horses. 
which is extremely dangerous. I, I don't even like to be around horses because they're so muscular and so unpredictable, right? You just walk behind them, they'll kick you in the face and kill you, right? But that's 10-year-old boys were, were driving teams of horses because the work needed to get done in the fields, right? What about warfare? Think of, think of the Civil War drummer boy, right? Well, they said that there were rules in the army that you weren't supposed to have children under the age of 16. Later, it was moved up to 18, but there's proof that 11, 10-year-old boys were were on the battlefields, drummer boys. They weren't necessarily on the battlefields, but those drummer boys acted as assistant surgeons. And if you know anything about Civil War surgery, you wouldn't want to be in the tent and hearing the man scream as his limbs are hacked off by a saw. And there they are, assistant surgeons. They were also stretcher bearers. They would go out on the field after the battle was over and they would bring the wounded off the field. They were also medics. They would find the wounded and, and serve them that way. And so, um, but some of, those, some of those young men even went into battle hearing the whizzing of, of bullets passing their heads. Uh, think of industry. Think of industry um, until recently. Uh, young men would go to work very early and keep the same hours as their father. Now, whether or not that's good or bad, we can have a debate. But my point, the point of it is, is that young men were thrust into adulthood much earlier than they are today. Today we have what's called prolonged adolescence. Right? Today courage is so cheap. Courage is so cheap. We are proud of our boys when they wake up before 8 a.m. And that's pathetic. This shouldn't be. We need to train our boys, train our young men to have faith to enter into real battles, real situations, right? And we need to train them for battle. And here's what I would say to that. Don't let your wives mollycoddle your sons. Don't do it. Give them hard tasks to accomplish and encourage them even as they can't do it to finish the task. I want to I read, um, this is a book I've been reading very slowly. It's called Little Britches, Father and I Were Ranchers. It's by Ralph Moody. I don't know, how many of you have read this? It's a more popular book than, than I realized. But it's really about a father and a son, and it's about a son, his family moves from the East Coast to Colorado, and they change vocations, and they become farmers out there. And so this boy is thrust into a whole bunch of situations where he has, he has to play the man, right? And there's one situation here that made me think of the, the mothers mollycoddling their boys, and I'll read it to you. Although I was having a lot more fun at home, 
things were getting worse and worse at school. The Friday after we moved the bunkhouse, it got so bad I couldn't stand it any longer. We had just finished eating our lunches that noon when Freddie Sprague started picking on me. He yanked at my pants so hard that all but one of the buttons flew off and I had to use both hands to hold them up. Then he got dirty and then he got dirty and yelled to the other kids, "Let's pull Molly's pants off so he won't have to so he will have to squat like a girl." They did, and right where all the girls could see, too. I didn't care whether mother would be ashamed of me or not. I couldn't be a gentleman with my pants off, and I didn't want to be one anyway. I plowed into Freddy with both fists. I had a big advantage because he didn't expect it. His nose started bleeding before mine did, and that made me sure I could lick him. He tried to quit after a few minutes, but the older boys wouldn't let him out of the ring. I had been dreaming about that day for a month and kept hitting him as fast as I could make my arms go. I heard the girls' voices around the ring and looked right up into Grace's face. She was, this is his sister, she was jumping up and down and yelling, hit him, hit him, hit him hard. I did my best and Freddie put both arms up over his face. Once when the boys were pulling him back onto his feet, I glanced up toward the schoolhouse Miss Wheeler was peeking out of the corner, that's the teacher, was peeking out of the corner of the window, but she didn't ring the bell till it was all over, and Grace had pinned my pants back on. Rudolph Haas lived way over south of the schoolhouse, but that night he drove Grace and me clear to our house in his buggy. Just before we got in, Miss Wheeler came and said for Grace to tell mother that she thought I had made my adjustment now like adjusting to the new situations. Maybe she thought so, but mother didn't. She started to cry as soon as she saw me. My eye had turned kind of greenish black. She even cried when she was paddling me. It was a good hard spanking with one of father's slippers, but I didn't mind it at all. It was worth two spankings to lick Freddie. I didn't remember all the things she said to me, but they were plenty. Then she told Grace to call father. He sent me for the milk as soon as he came into the house. The next day was Saturday, and I worked with Father all day. He was cutting the bunkhouse in two so we could move one of the pieces around and build it into a new kitchen. Along in the middle of the forenoon, I was holding a window sash while he took off the frame. He had his back to me, and we hadn't been talking at all. All at once, he said, I hear you had a fight yesterday. I had been expecting it. I didn't look up, and he didn't turn around. I said, yes, sir. He said, did you lick him? Yes, sir. And he said, good. That was all. He never mentioned it again. I mean, that's helpful to me. It's helpful to the uh, different dynamics that mothers and fathers have with their sons. Um, you know, what you didn't have is all the background and all the misery that he had gone through because of little Sprague's um, constant picking. But there's a mother who uh, is upset and worried about his reputation, and yet a father who, who uh, wants to just encourage him to to be a man. 
There are a lot of examples in the book. It's a good book because um, this young man probably is more ambitious than he is smart, and he did a lot of things that took courage, but he probably wasn't quite ready for. But his father always had this attitude that, okay, it's good that it was dangerous. He'd spank him because it was dangerous, but then he'd be secretly proud that his son had attempted to do hard and dangerous things. Right? But we protect our sons from that kind of situation. We protect our sons. And we need to retain this. I, how? I don't know. How is this even possible when you live in suburbia? Nothing's dangerous. Right? Nothing's difficult. Everything's easy. Right? And I'm not going to go all, we need to move to a commune and subsist farm and do all those things. That's, that's not what we need to do. But we do need to give our sons the, the ability to become one of the 30, right? To have hard situations and to become courageous, right? If, and, and sons, what you think is courage is often not courage, Right? What you think is courage is not often courage. Um, getting angsty about girls is not courage. Okay? Be a man. Right? Find a woman and marry her. <laughs> Subdue and conquer. Right? Take dominion. Take dominion. But let's not get all angsty about these things, right? Um, work hard. Whatever you have to do, work very hard. Go stay late. Get to your jobs early and stay late. And make sure that you're loyal to your employer. That you become indispensable to the place where you work. And don't be one of those whiny employees, right? That boss is just can't stand, right? Make yourself indispensable and work harder than you have to, even when you're not getting paid for those extra hours that you put in for them. Work hard. Um, Build your muscles not by going to the gym. Build your muscles by working, by doing the work that God has given you to do, right? I'm not opposed to you going to the gym, but hear what I'm saying, right? There's a decadence to building your muscles by anything other than work. So we need to reclaim this. We need boys to be in real danger so that they develop. And I, I am specifically speaking to young men. I am not going to make the error today of equating our young women and our young men. The, the way I would raise young ladies is way different than the way that I would raise boys to be men. Okay? But we as a church need to figure this out. We as elders need to figure this out. And deacons, we need to figure out how to thrust our boys into dangerous situations. And even over the objections of our wives. And then we will find that they become courageous, loyal, 
men who are able to work with other men. They're able to collaborate. Um, not the ind- independent sort of whiner our churches are plagued with today. Just independent, I'm for myself whiners. It's just disgusting. There's so many of us like that. One final thing about courage and leadership. Start, young men, by being courageous. Stride into situations that make you uncomfortable and wrestle those situations into the ground. If that's talking to a stranger, go talk to strangers. Right? Just thrust yourself into that situation. If it's making an order at a fast food restaurant, make the order at a fast food restaurant by shouting it at the top of your lungs. Take dominion at Wendy's, right? <laughs> Whatever. You know, some of you, some of you young men have a hard time with that sort of human interaction. But you gotta, you've got to conquer that. And move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then you might have the courage to marry a woman and have children. Start by being courageous. And so some of you will stop with being courageous. And you will be useful. And it will glorify God. But then there are leaders among those who are courageous. And you'll be able to inspire other men to be courageous. And that's what you really want to become, is a leader. A leader of men. A leader that can inspire men to be men. And do it for the reason that Jesus did it. Jesus was courageous. Jesus was a leader. He was the leader who brought the apostles into the, the frenzy of this world and the sinfulness of the world, and they preached the name of Jesus Christ. And they did it for the reason that our Savior did it, and that's, that, you know, even as he bore the wrath of God, he did it because he had joy set before him. Right? That's why he did it, for the joy that was set before him. He knew the reward was coming, not in this life, but in the life to come. Right? He knew that, and he had that joy set before him. And so for the same reason, you young men, you should... Be courageous, you should work hard, you should build up these muscles uh, so that you can rejoice and enjoy God and all of his blessings. As I believe these men who are commemorated here did by being loyal to God and loyal to David and courageous in the midst of terrible circumstances. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the three and the 30, for these men that you have memorialized here. Father, we thank you that they served David. We thank you for David's own courage, that he was a man after your heart, that he loved to serve you, that even when, when his wife was mocking him for his zeal, he's, he had you before his eyes. Father, I pray for our young men. I pray that they would leave behind softness and that they would embrace difficulty, that they would look for situations that make them uncomfortable and they would stride into them, trusting you and seeking to bring you glory. And I pray that as they fail, 
that they would step up and do it again, and as they succeed, that they would gain even more courage to continue to fight for your glory and your kingdom. Lord, help us to help us older men to be an example of this and to leave behind our own softness that we have cultivated for decades. Lord, I pray that we would be courageous and act. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.